Software applications are constantly generating log data. These logs are necessary to understand how an application is functioning, and logs are key to debugging. As applications have gotten more complex, logging infrastructure has gotten complex as well. Storing and managing all of our log data is such a big task that several companies have been started to tackle this entire problem of logging. Today's guest is Christian Biedgen, CTO at Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-based log management company. Today we discuss the elastic log processing platform that Sumo Logic has built to help software engineers with log management. It's a great conversation about distributed systems, machine learning, debugging applications, and everything else related to logs. If you're a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we want to know how to improve. Please take five minutes to fill out our listener survey. There's a link to the survey in our newsletter and on our website. Uh, we'll stop talking about the survey before too much longer, but we really want to know what you think and what you want to hear more of and what you want to hear less of. So far, we've had about 100 survey respondents, so we could really use a lot more. We know there's a lot more listeners out there, so we read all of the feedback that we get. So please fill out the survey. Help us build the best software podcast for you. Sumo Logic is a cloud-based log management solution. Christian Biedgen is the CTO at Sumo Logic. Christian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi there, Jeff. As companies move into the cloud, the way that applications perform logging is changing. Describe how application logging has changed as we have moved into the cloud. First of all, uh, I think the need for logging uh, has increased. Um, not that it was not there before, but as we are now building these cloud-based applications, uh, microservices, architectures, etc., so now pretty much everything you build, you know, runs on it's essentially a distributed system, uh, and the cloud, of course, supporting that, um, you know, with infrastructure as a service or pass or what, what have you. Um, your systems, in many ways, become a little bit more complex, uh, and there's more moving parts to them, and uh, I think in many ways that that greatly increases the need for logging um not that you didn't need logs before on your servers or on your applications but i think it's even it's even more important now that you add logs uh, uh you know sort of to your sort of monitoring portfolio so you can actually stand a chance of figuring out what's going on in the first place and and of course also uh you know what might be wrong and if in fact something does go wrong find the actual root cause sure you have said that log data is big data. Explain this quote in more detail. Sure. So um, so I've been dealing with logs ever since I started uh, as an engineer at ArcSight back in 2001. And so somehow I ended up basically, you know, it, my whole career so far has been with logs. Not that that was necessarily by choice, but like that's sometimes just how what it happens, right? Um, and uh, one of the things that we've even back then struggled with at uh, at Arcsight was, you know, the fact that the data was uh, so voluminous, right? So basically, you know, I'm kind of trying to tee up the the classic definition of big data as being, you know, uh, you know, high volume high velocity and and massive variety and um so that we didn't really have the term big data for it at that point um and then you know later through the decade and you know earlier to take it you know the whole big data thing started coming up because i think a lot more companies from a lot more different use cases started seeing that modern data really is this kind of sort of 
non-traditional kind of streaming mess, basically, <laughs> the, the streaming hot mess that uh, that doesn't really fit into, a, you know, sort of a classic database, you know, schema anymore. And on, on top of it, uh, you know, it comes at you in real time at high velocity and, uh, uh, and it's a lot of it, right? And so... When we looked at, um, you know, how we how we would need to solve the problem, or the problems that we ran into before, and and that kind of went into the hypothesis behind Sumo Logic, we realized that we really had to we really had to come up with a solution, you know, for all of the aspects of of big data, right? Uh, whether or not we were aware of it at the time, and then as we looked into this a little bit more carefully, we realized that. In many ways, machine data, which is kind of sort of the fancy term for logs, uh, that machine data really, really is the original big data, um, right? Uh, because it has this, you know, increasing volume. It has a huge amount of variety that sort of speaks to the fact that it's usually semi-structured. Uh, and that, of course, poses its own set of uh, non-trivial problems. And there is this idea that, or, you know, there's just the, there's the fact that logs are, are essentially time-stamped, right? And and then that speaks sort of to the velocity aspect of it, which means that, you know, people say, hey, you know, big data has high velocity. What that means is that you need to process it ideally right when it happens, right? Because it is actually time series data in so many words. Uh, and, uh, you know, classic systems, of, as we know by now uh, pretty well, uh, you know, neither in the sort of generic case of a database or in the somewhat more specialized case of a log management system for particular, uh, you know, kind of domain-specific, uh, you know, solutions was actually prepared for that. So, so that's kind of that's kind of how we're thinking about it. Now that we've set the stage for how you think about logging, what does Sumo Logic do? So what we do is we basically um, make it extremely easy for you to use logs and other machine data to get a better idea uh, uh, and, and become more efficient at, you know, building, running, and securing your systems. Okay. And if logging isn't handled properly, developers can end up spending more time understanding and fixing the logging system itself rather than taking advantage of that logging and taking advantage of the information that that logging gives them. So with that in mind, how do you handle logging in a way that that really relieves developers from having to constantly fix and understand their logging system? Well, um, we do that by basically taking the logging system out of their hands uh, in a good way by offering, uh, I mean, our offering is a cloud-based service, right? So um, you don't have to install anything. You don't have to basically set up yet another cluster worth of stuff uh, that's going to get hard to manage in order to do log management. Uh, you know, you don't have to, you know, pay for more machines, find the people to to administer it, uh, and administer all of that, etc. And and you know, we basically provide that sort of out of the box as a service in a very in a very reliable and you know cost efficient manner. And that basically allows you to go back and worry about what you really should be worrying about, which is your application, instead of becoming, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, an, an expert at administering, you know, log management systems, which I think for most people is actually kind of boring <laughs> and, and, and certainly not what they were hired to do, you know. Absolutely. And from the standpoint of the ops person or the developer who has to engage with the logging system, I mean, I've worked at several places where logging was really important on a day-to-day -day basis because they're like these high throughput real-time applications uh, like I worked at an options trading place and then an ad tech company, 
And at both of these companies, I, if there's a production issue, I would have to tail the logs manually. And if I'm using a cloud-based log aggregator, I mean, I'm curious if there are, is, is there still cases where I have to tail the log and grep for something and, and deal with this frustrating process of trying to find the thing that I'm looking for using the terminal? Well, uh, okay. So, so the first thing there that uh, you know, and that is that's obviously a very common experience that uh, that I've had in the past, and uh, you know as well. And it you know it starts with the fact that in order to be able to tail the log on a server, you have to have access to that server in the first place, right? Uh, and uh, you know, one of the things that usually people don't want to have is developers accessing the production servers, right? So, so there's kind of that problem in the first place, and you know, this is why we think you know, using any log management system in the first place is a good idea. So now, log management systems are um, are, are usually tuned towards the search use the search use case, which is sort of a, a troubleshooting and forensics use case where you can basically uh, you know enter a transaction ID or you just start by like it's almost like googling for error, right, in your own logs, uh, sort of after the fact. Um, however, as you said, um, the, sort of, the sort of idea that you can kind of, uh, you know, sort of tail the logs, which is something that, of course, as developers, we're all familiar with, is still important because sort of the real-time aspect of that is really important. And, you know, that's why we're offering LiveTail. And, and in fact, that's something that we have, uh, that we have released uh, last year. So you can, I mean, if you like the sort of metaphor of actually tailing logs, you can do that in Sumo. Um, you just don't have to be locked into the server. You don't have to. You don't have to figure out which the right server is in the first place, because in our case, the tailing uh, can kind of go in an abstract or fashion across the sort of you know concentrated logs, uh, and and we can do that in basically near real time, just as much as you could do on a, on a on a console, and that can be very very useful because as a you know as you stare at these things, you know the human mind can sometimes pick up patterns that that you know that are otherwise you know you would probably not know how to search for etc right yeah like the guy looking at the matrix code yeah, pretty uh, much <laughs> pretty so, much so okay so but uh one thing i'm curious about is is if I, i'm not exactly clear on sumo logic setup so is the if i if i have sumo logic handling my logging logic is there any significant latency added by the fact that the logs are propagating to the cloud or propagating to wherever uh, Sumo Logic is handling the logs? Um, the, I think it depends on your definition of significant. I would argue that uh, you know it's it's actually not significant latency, um, and in fact, it, I don't think it's actually a higher latency that you would have if you have a log management system that runs on prem. What we have found uh, is that you know the data comes to us within, on average, about five hundred milliseconds, um, and the way that the data comes to us is either through uh, the the uh, we, we call that sort of collectors. That's a, that's a small piece of software that we make available that kind of knows how to sort of on your end, um, you know, you know, grab logs from a file or act as a syslog server, all of these individual things that you would expect. Uh, or you send us the logs directly via HTTP. And again, I mean, the pipes are there today. Uh, I mean, you're not necessarily going to run your service on a Game Boy hooked up to a 300 baud modem, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and so the networks are not really the problem anymore. Uh, in many cases, um, uh, you know, I mean, we, we basically are based on AWS. I mean, so the pipes are definitely there. Uh, you know, and then there's these other ways of getting the logs into Sumo, which is like sort of a direct kind of, you know, I guess, backbone type integration where 
um, you know, for example, AWS, but other cloud providers as well, provide a good amount of, you know, uh, you know, real-time information. Uh, you know, AWS CloudTrail comes to mind, VPC flow logs, you know, ELB logs, CloudFront logs, Akamai logs, etc. cetera, uh, that, that we can basically grab or that basically get pushed to us if that's set up, uh, if that's something a customer wants, you know, directly from the source without actually even traveling through any kind of, uh, you know, collection conduit on the customer's end. Uh, and, you know, I think as people are doing more and more sort of cloud-based stuff, being able to like natively tap into that stuff, uh, you know, is first of all, extremely convenient. Second of all, uh, you know, also very, very low latency. So one way that you have discussed your, your logging service is as an elastic log processing platform. What kinds of elasticity are important from your standpoint in the log processing architecture? Okay, so um, the problem that we have seen uh, with you know with our customers, and that that's something that we we know actually back even from the Oxlade days, is that um, logs don't come at you necessarily at a constant rate, right? So, um, first of all, there's sort of daily fluctuations. Um, you know, sometimes you have less logs during the night, you know, then there's weekly fluctuations. Most businesses probably, and that's kind of what we see, you know, globally across everybody here as well, which is kind of interesting. You know, load actually tends to go down a little bit on the weekend. And then depending on what business you're running, you might have things like, you know, Black Friday, where suddenly everything goes up by 10x, Right. So, um, so the problem with, with the sort of, uh, you know, if you want to do this yourself or if you want to use an on-prem system, you don't really know, um, you know, basically if you want to, if you want to provision it so that it'll always work, you always have to provision for the peak, right? Or like one of our early guys said, you always have to build the church out for Sunday, right? And the rest of the days it's just sitting there and it's like basically empty. And the point is that that ends up being very costly, Right, and most people will not actually spend the money on that, uh, and then they end up with something that is under provisioned for the times when uh, you know when they actually get a lot of load. That could either be uh, you know, for example, on a Black Friday scenario, uh, or um, you know, interestingly enough, also usually when there is actually problems, and those are even harder to predict than Black Friday. Right, and Black Friday is somewhat of a predictable thing. Uh, but you know, one thing that you will probably have observed yourself is that when when you know when shit's going wrong you know, you will get, often you will get actually an additional flood of log information, long, long exception stack traces, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then if your system is under-provisioned, uh, then you have a problem, right? Then you introduce additional latency or things get topped on the floor, you, you lose visibility and so forth. And so for us, it was very important that we could basically provide a system that is on our end fully multi-tenant and, you know, elastic in a sense that the entire system is elastic because, you know, that's, you know, how you should build the application in the first place or the service in our case, but it's also elastic on a per tenant basis, right? And this is why we really like the idea of doing this in a multi-tenant way because pretty much, and this is also something that is now an experience value, we guessed it and it turned out to actually be true, is that even though we have lots of customers, I mean, a thousand paying customers and tons of people who are using the free offering, the actual load on the system uh, is actually rather steady, but the individual tenants or customers very wildly. I mean, we have people go from, 
you know, 8x, you know, uh, on the weekend if something goes wrong and all of these kinds of things. And and because we have this multi-tenant architecture and because we are provisioned in such a way that we basically know what the absolute ceiling will be, uh, uh, you know, we can in a very cost-efficient way allow people to basically at times where they need more capacity, you know, more compute, more search capacity, more ingest capacity in the first place, you know, we are able to basically make that work because on the because it evens out across everybody on the system. Right, and most of the time, when you have a really bad problem, the other guys are just coasting along fine. And so, by the time it's all adding up, uh, we can actually do that uh, at, a, at, a, at a very sort of nifty provisioning level for us. That helps us basically not having to build out like a thousand churches for Sunday, right? <laughs> uh, which you know, and and that's a cost of that, that that that's a cost advantage that we have, and and we turn that around and give that cost advantage back to our customers. So it's not just more cost efficient and ultimately cheaper for them, but it'll also work better. And I think that's probably even more important. Fascinating. Is that because uh, I mean th- that brings up an interesting point? Because I was thinking, you know, as I was kind of researching for this episode like there's so many of these different log management tools and and like how do they differ and i was like looking like how do they differ from user experience to user experience and perhaps the back end systems economics are equally important as the front end um because if you have better back end systems economics then you can provide lower cost services that have uh, the same feature sets as competitors that is absolutely correct. And uh, that is something that we felt very strongly about when we started thinking about putting this company together and that I'm actually happy to say has, has worked out that way. Very interesting. So a single user that is running a single app in, in any context, any any application, there's multiple types of logs at different levels of the stack. There's network logs and virtualization logs and server logs and database logs and middleware and open source and application level logs. Do users need to track all of this log data? Do they need to save all of this log data or do they just need to focus on their application logs? Uh, that's, that's a really interesting question, right? And so um, I'm kind of slightly biased there. But, you know, I usually like the idea of getting everything into the system, uh, you know, but then, you know, uh, the cynic will say, hey, you know, but Christian, you are charging by volume. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I will admit that, that that could be interpreted as being somewhat self-serving, right? Uh, you know, I, and then that's fair, right? But I mean, we all need to, we all need to run a business. But, but in the end, I actually do think uh, that you would want to get the logs across the entire stack, right? Um, I think it's very important uh, to be able to pull the application logs in, right? Uh, that usually, I mean, the application logs often have, uh, you know, some some very juicy bits of information. Um, frankly, not sometimes not just on how the system works, but also on, you know, there's a lot of data there that you can extract and actually present back to the business <laughs> and, you know, tell them how, how their business is doing way before the the data warehouse is being <laughs> is updated if if it's if it's even updated, um, but uh, from the from the sort of you know, kind of that's kind of that's kind of going up. You know, towards like using using logs for sort of understanding the bit the business etc. But if you're thinking about you know uh, uh, you know a system like ours as essentially a system that provides BI for IT. In that case, I think it's extremely important that you can actually look down the stack as well, right? Um, because complex because faults end up being complex, right? And if you're lucky, uh, uh, I don't know, you you have some sort of runtime class cast exception because somebody smuggled in 
the wrong jar or something. <laughs> uh, and then you can find this, you know, usually, you know, rather quickly if you have a system like Sumo in place. Uh, but if you have more complex faults, you know, more data will ultimately get you to the resolution more quickly. And so it's down the stack and everything around it, uh, you know, including a lot of the data that's being made available from, um, you know, again, I, 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 I just love this, this, this whole thing about uh, a lot of the information that AWS, for example, makes available, especially things like CloudTrail, et cetera, right? Because if you're building a service, it's not just your application code that you need to worry about. I mean, the service includes things such as, you know, who is actually operating it, who is even being able to log in uh, and make what kind of changes. Uh, because you're not just sort of basically putting software in a CD-ROM and then chuck it over and let the customer worry about it, you know, now as a service, which is where everybody's basically going and where many people already are. Um, the software, I mean, it's basically software-defined software, right? And, uh, you know, so all of these aspects about the surrounding and then the operational aspects are super important and the audits and all that kind of stuff. And if you have something like CloudTrail, for example, which can tell you that somebody logged in and shut down a port or uh, or changed the security, so security group setting are extremely important because... Uh, that could also ultimately be the reason for why your stuff's not working anymore, right? I mean, so it's down the stack, you know, for all of those reasons, because maybe it's a network issue, but in many cases, your stack does not actually go that deep anymore because you might not actually own all the way down to sort of the rack and the switch level or the network pipe level. Uh, but you definitely then, if your cloud provider provides, you know, some sort of resemblance of that, you want to pull that in for sure because it's not just for visibility, it's definitely also for... Uh, you know, for those sort of gnarly troubleshooting those cases. I'd love to get an idea for how Sumo Logic works, how it's architected, and and the usage of it. If I'm a developer, having my logs consumed by Sumo Logic so that I can access Sumo Logic services, I, I'd love to know the ingestion process and how those logs get processed and stored on Sumo Logic servers. Could you just give me an overview of how that works? Sure. So on the back end, the entire thing is uh, written in Scala. Uh, and, and it's basically a JVM-based system, but uh, it's written in Scala. We run in AWS. Um, we, uh, uh, okay, so that's basically, you know, one of, one of the things, um, we provide the collector software that can, that's essentially a conduit to transport the data into Sumo, or you send it over HTTP post, which is very simple, or you use one of these other cloud-based integrations. But like, if you want to sort of, if you're sitting there and you want to bring in uh, your application logs, uh, uh, you know, if you're using Heroku, we can do it straight through Heroku because because we have an integration with their log trains. But let's just say you spun up your own instance uh, in AWS or you have some server sitting around that you're putting a bunch of code on. Um, usually what happens is that you're logging to a file, right? So that's kind of the most common, you know, a baseline use case. Uh, some log4j stuff or depending on, you know, what programming language you use, but you basically you're basically logging to file, right? Uh, and uh, we can we can basically you know you can download this collector and you can put it on a box and you point it to the file or the directory in which the file is at, and we will just basically start gobbling that up and we'll we'll send it to Sumo, right? And then when it comes into Sumo, um, so the way it comes into Sumo is over HTTPS, so it's usually not a problem outbound in the firewall. It's also encrypted, of course. When it comes into Sumo, what happens is that, um, you know, we will do a little bit of chunking and metadata stuff, uh, timestamp extraction, uh, all of those sort of little gnarly things. Um, timestamp extraction is a topic all in itself. It, it's unbelievable kind of 
what kind of time formats people can dream up um, or time <laughs> formats. Uh, it's essentially essentially random. Uh, but um, then basically we basically we fork it and it runs. We the, the the incoming data runs through three different pipelines. One is very simple, where we essentially just store the raw data. Uh, in an encrypted form in, in Amazon S3, so we never lose that. The second one is we are shoving it through an indexing pipeline that essentially creates full text indexes for all the data that's coming in. And then um, those get, you know, of course, also encrypted and stored in S3. And then the, uh, and, you know, this basically provides the search, uh, you know, functionality. And then uh, thirdly, we we push all the data through what we call CQ internally, which stands for continuous queries, which is a fancy way of saying that we're basically running streaming queries um, to update uh, data in real time that we can then show on dashboards. Um, uh, so that is roughly how it works on the ingest path. So you just store everything in S3, and that is your replication strategy. Ah, okay. So we technically have two copies of everything. One is the raw one, and then you know there's also sort of a you know a slightly different deformatted, of course, because it's an inverted index. But there's a second copy of the data, uh, you know, uh, as, as as part of the index. Um, and uh, I think S3 has a minimum level of replication of three, so we basically have six copies of the data. Um, and of course, S3 has these ridiculous uh, uh, durability guarantees, and uh, it's uh, it's awesome. I mean, if we had to build that ourselves, it would be. I mean, we would probably still be at it. <laughs> it's a pretty awesome system. Totally. How long does it take to build that inverted index? Well, uh, the inverted index. Uh, that's a, that's an interesting. That's actually a really interesting question. Um, you know, so you can kind of try to. You, there's basically two ways of doing that, right? You know, one is to basically build it in memory and then you know regularly flush it out to disk. Uh, at which point, it will not be available to search uh, until it's actually flushed. And you can technically flush it every second if you want, but or, or every minute, or every two minutes, or every hour. Depending on how oftentimes you flush it, the more index shards you will end up with. And if you have too many, that's that's a very, very, very sad situation. Um, so you're running into this kind of conflict there where, um, you know, you're introducing latency by basically not flushing the index out to disk. So it's not available for search yet. Uh, so you want to do that relatively quickly, but then, you know, you run into all kinds of downstream problems. So the right way to do that is, 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 is to use something called near real-time indexing. Um, so we're JVM-based system, right? And the, the full-text indexing at its very, very core is, of course, using Lucene, uh, like, like pretty much everybody else, at least in the Java world. Um, it's the great library for doing this type of stuff. Um, Lucene has today capabilities that are called NRT or near, near real-time indexing, where you can essentially write to the index, um, but you can also read at it at the same time. Uh, and in that case, you know, there's basically no latency, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Can you tell me about any interesting distributed systems problems that you have tackled at Sumo Logic that stand out? Yeah, uh, one, and I think this is probably something that a lot of people have learned over time as well. And you know, frankly, if I just had to, if we had just read the right books uh, before before doing anything, <laughs> we would have not had to learn it ourselves. But that, so such is life, right? Um, <laughs> so, so when you look at the sort of dimensions of scaling, right? Um, you know, one level of scaling is kind of vertical, right? You basically. 
uh, uh, you just make bigger boxes, etc. And and then that that just doesn't really work very well. And then the next level is essentially, hey, you're, deco- you're decomposing your system, uh, you know, sort of horizontally, right? Which of course a lot of people know today. Um, and then the next level is, uh, and that's a bit of a sidebar, but then the next level is you also decompose it functionally and then you end up with microservices, right? But you basically end up with microservices where you have uh, sort of this like interesting sort of two-dimensional scaling thing where um, you have a different, you have many services and then each service itself is horizontally scaled uh, differently than any other service potentially. Some services you only need three of, you almost never want less than three of anything, I guess. <laughs> and some of them, you, you, some services run on like a thousand or even more boxes. Okay, so those are the two things. Now, the horizontal scalability in a multi-tenant system turns turns into a really interesting problem because you would sort of naively, at least we, uh, naive as we were, or probably still are, like initially thought, hey, um, how do we sort of distribute the work across the horizontal, um, let's just say the indexer, for example, right? So we get all of this data shoved in, we put it in a big queue, and then, you know, we have a thousand indexers or whatever, and they will just eat eat the data off the queue and uh, and make indexes, and, and that's cool. Except for it isn't, because what happens is that you have a thousand customers on the system, and they all have, you know, first of all, you know, they have different amounts of data coming in. But also, uh, if every, if if like a thousand indexers chew on a thousand, you know, uh, uh, customers' data, then each indexer will only see a relatively small fraction of that customer's data, and then you end up with a lot of small shards. Uh, that you have to manage, and each one of them probably only has a couple of hundred megs in it, or even a couple of hundred bytes sometimes. So, so that's the sort of interesting part of of, of horizontal scalability in a multi-tenant system. If you actually do that naively and simply distribute every customer over every dist- over every uh, over every node in a cluster, you end up with you know just this like really really incredible fragmentation, uh, which blows up your metadata databases and you know causes lots of sort of for, in, for inverted indexes, you know, fixed cost uh, uh, expenses that you have and all of that from the perspective of, um, you know, repeating data and how long does it even take to order to open an index if you have too many of them, then it takes too long. So maybe you can just have, like, less, uh, et cetera. So, so what we found is that on top of the horizontal, like, as soon as you horizontally scale, the very next thing that you need to do is you need to have a story on how to basically partition your customers in such a way that they don't just naively get distributed about across every node uh, in your in your horizontally you know scaled cluster i'm not sure if i explained that right but like no, that, no, that, that that was very I, interesting yeah. yeah absolutely that's super interesting uh and now that we've kind of discussed a complex distributed systems problem there are there are definitely some listeners who are not super familiar with distributed systems and i try to bring that into a lot of the conversations that we have on the show uh, and one thing we've already touched on twice is the fact that you often want to replicate three times. And, uh, you know, to people listening, they might be like, okay, I don't understand that. Like, they might understand replication, but they don't understand the three. Why Why is that number three so magical? Why do you want to replicate three times? Oh, um, the, the, you know, the 3x replication. Um, ha, you got me. Um there was a rule about that somewhere that I forgot. <laughs> okay. 
Does it have anything to do with like quorums or? It has something. Uh, to, it has something to do with quorums. Okay, this okay. is like super embarrassing. I should actually know that. <laughs> no, no. It's what's perfect about it is it's like a lot of people listening. They they have imposter syndrome for some reason, and now they now they know that uh you know you don't need to have imposter syndrome because this this knowledge escapes people all the time. Anyway, whatever. Let's move on to the next question. So Sumo Logic wants to use machine learning. It wants to compare different log sets from different customers and use machine learning to find correlations between those different customers. Why why is machine data like logs? Why are logs such a good fit for machine learning? Well, I mean, you basically, you want to look at kind of what use cases you can drive out of that, right? Uh, and um, so, so one of the first things that we did that kind of was was intuitive to us when it when it when it came to how to use machine learning for, uh, you know, for machine data was, you know, to sort of dig a little bit deeper into this issue that you have with machine data, which is variety, right? So basically, we're dealing with semi-structured data. We basically are dealing with data that is not that does not fit any particular relational schema or anything, right? So there's a huge variety in the data. So what happens is you walk up to your system, you search for error, and you probably get 100,000 results back for the last hour, right? And um, they all look different to you, and initially they will look different to computer as well. And so now you know that you have had 100,000 things that contain the word error uh, over the last hour, so basically you you still haven't learned anything. Um you know, for the human, it's very hard to process that. You're not going to page through all of that. Um, and then you start thinking, hey, is there some sort of, uh, uh, is, is there some sort of common property that's, that's somehow shared across these, these logs or these error logs that I could somehow extract? And then you realize, hey, logs are actually generated by printf statements, right? And the way a printf statement usually works is there's a template, uh, and then you fill in values depending on the actual runtime execution, Right. So if you even if you have a hundred thousand logs, they are probably gener sorry, a hundred thousand error logs, or again, if you have a hundred thousand errors that all look different over the last hour, they are actually generated by probably anywhere between ten uh, to maybe a hundred or so different printf statements. Right? And so with that intuition you can say, hey, if I could actually somehow reverse engineer what those printf statements are then instead of showing the 100,000 errors, I just show you the 10 classes of errors and how many times they each happened, right? Uh, so you're basically building a classifier that way by basically using this intuition of, of somehow figuring out when you look at all of these logs, assuming that they were written by printf statements, meaning that they have a lot of structure that actually is similar. It's not, it's not described that way, but you can infer it, Right. And so they basically build a classifier, and then instead of you know showing people 100,000 logs, what you show them is, hey, this happened 90,000 times, this happened you know 10,000 times, and then this other thing happened once, for example, right? To make a simple example, and every time we end up doing that in front of a customer with their live data, uh, like basically one guy immediately gets up and runs out, runs out of the room and finds a terminal to fix something. <laughs> 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 okay. Right. So then you can kind of drive that kind of insight. Sure. Absolutely. And one of the interesting problems around this, though, is that you touched on this earlier. Log data is often structured, but other times it is unstructured. And I find it interesting because it's, you know, you're trying to find these correlations between different customers, but I imagine different customers have their data formatted differently. And I'm very curious about, like, is there a format that users have to adhere to in order to get the most out of Sumo Logic? Or 
have you guys gotten just really good at inferring the schema of logs? Uh, uh, so no, they actually don't. Uh, you know, specifically, we don't want them to. Uh, or you know, in other words, you could also say that. You know, I think we've all made a realization that they're like forcing people to adhere to any particular format is just a losing battle because they won't. <laughs> um, it just they just Jason. Won't, right? Yeah, that's a that's a great idea. Uh, and in in the reality is that like you know, as people get uh, you know get more and more sort of, I guess, familiar with this type of stuff, uh, we see more and more logs come in in JSON, and that's great because we can we can actually save some of the work. But overall. The system is designed in such a way to not make any assumptions, right? Because um, because across the board, a lot of people, you know, they don't actually know that it's easier if they would just send the JSON because, you know, it'll, it'll save them some work downstream in the analysis. But the fact also is that on top of that, um, even for the people who know that, uh, they might not actually have control over the full stack or all the places that the logs come from, right? So even if I'm really, really good and, you know, super anal about like, making sure that all of my application logs are written in JSON, uh, my app server might not uh, spit it out in JSON or my Ruby on Rails thing might have its own ideas as it tends to usually have about how this shit should be formatted. Uh, and then, you know, you go deeper and deeper and deeper down uh, and, and then, you know, you might hit some sort of legacy application at which point the locks are more or less random. And I mean, I've seen things you wouldn't believe. I mean, <laughs> uh, like, we have, we have some very, we have run into some very, very, very interesting, uh, uh, you know, locks, uh, for sure. But, but so the point is that, you know, this idea of, it just won't work in reality. Right. Um, uh, uh, you know, people t- tend to, uh, tend to have their own opinions and, uh, you know, and I actually think that's good. Uh, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not a big fan of a one party system or in fact, not even of a two party system, frankly. <laughs> so, um, so the idea that there's variety, I think it's just a reality and I think it's good. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and so the tool needs to be able to deal with that. Right. And, and, and we do that, uh, by allowing you to parse the data and all of that. But like, since you were asking specifically about the machine data, um, the, the inference, uh, uh of basically figuring out the templates or, or the, you know, the classes of logs. So essentially which printf created them, uh, that's, that's, that's a really interesting approach to that. Um, now regarding, uh, what you, what you can learn, uh, you know, across customers, um, so, so the reality is that uh, a lot of customers actually are using the same stacks, right? Uh, and, you know, they might be running the same application server, or they might be running the same framework, or they might be running, uh, you know, something like Hadoop, et cetera, right? And uh, the templates there are always the same, right? And then that, that, that's where it gets really interesting. If you can annotate them and you can say, hey, you know, my Hadoop has seen this problem. And um, uh, now when, when, you know, when your Hadoop runs into it, you'll get my annotation with it right away, et cetera. And that's kind of sort of the, that's kind of where we're, that's kind of the envelope that we're trying to push. Since Sumo Logic is a tool for log processing, this is clearly a tool that would be used by members of an ops team or, or even just anybody in a DevOps organization. I have heard you describe Sumo Logic as no ops, and I've heard this term before describing how Netflix handles its operations. Describe what no ops is and how it reflects the culture at Sumo Logic. Oh yeah, that's a really that's a that's a very interesting one. I, I think I think uh, uh, um, I think Adrian Cockroft actually threw out that no ops term at some point, and and like. 
you know, around around the US, like head started to explode um, <laughs> because people thought that was very insulting. Um, because they didn't understand what he was saying. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, I think that that is actually a really interesting topic, right? So, um, okay, where to start? So, so look, as far as Sumo is concerned, you know, Sumo was started by a bunch of developers, right? Um, you know, we are not ops people. I mean, the, our core group of, you know, founders and early employees, we, we just happen to basically be developers, right? Um, uh, you know, we don't know really anything. I haven't seen a data center from the inside in like 10 years or so. Um, you know, we use the power of AWS to basically make this whole thing possible because now the data center becomes an API and, you know, as developers, we're comfortable with that, right? Um, like any company that, you know, you always start from somewhere, right? And uh, there's nothing right or wrong. I think Sumo could have just as much, uh, another company gets started by people who have a different background, that's perfectly fine, Right. And you need to sort of figure out what are things are that you're missing. But at the same time, depending on where you're coming from, that sort of, in many ways, you know, describes kind of the, um, I guess, bias that you have, right? And uh, the bias that we have as developers is that um, basically every problem that could potentially exist is, um, you know, maybe short of marriage, is is actually solvable by writing a program, <laughs> right? And so... So, uh, you know, our, um, you know, based on that bias, uh, you know, we've always basically been trying to literally radically, you know, use, you know, understand ourselves as programmers, not just for the application, but also for the infrastructure on top of which we run and automation and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's sort of with that, with that sort of, with that sort of background where, you know, I, I think Stefan said the NOPS thing at some point. He's our he's our he's our chief architect and is a super strong developer. And at the same time, he also actually knows a whole lot about, you know, the deeper levels of the stack, including networking. I mean, he's one of those guys who had his own BPS back in, I don't know, the '80s or so. Now I'm giving away how old he is, but um, so so that's kind of where we're coming from, right? I, I will. I'm not trying to say that this is the only way or even the best way of doing it. Um, you just sort of have to sort of, I think, leverage in many ways, you know, the capabilities that you have. And, you know, there are biases that come in. And I think Netflix in many ways uh, is also very, very, very strongly developer-driven company. Now, over the years, what I have realized is that, um, you know, developers are good at certain things and, uh, you know, they have blind spots, right? And uh, some of the blind spots that I that I can see even in myself and then certainly with all developers, both at Sumo as well as everywhere else, is... Um, the fascination with actually solving every problem that you can possibly have with with writing a program uh, kind of sometimes I think leads you to to not really paying enough attention to what the actual operational aspects of something really are because in the end there are humans involved and no matter how much you automate right when it comes to monitoring, when it comes to alerting processes, when it comes to postmodern processes, when it comes to, you know, actual RCA processes. Uh, and I think we're doing pretty well there. Uh, you know, I'm sure other people are doing even better. I think a lot of people probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, but six years in, we've definitely learned a couple of things. And one thing that we, that we certainly learned over time is that, you know, having, having folks uh, uh, as part of the team that are uh, that come from an operational background is is a very 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 good idea, right? Call that DevOps or whatever you want. Uh, I think so. The evolved version of Sumo uh, and our understanding. I, I would not necessarily wave the no ops flag too much, uh, you know. Wow. But I want to talk to how this came about and how we have. I mean, you know, why we probably or we're probably on record saying this at some point. You know, I do think. 
uh, and this might be controversial, but let's see. I, I do think that um, I do think that there is a, a movement towards sort of a skill that that everybody in technology needs to possess, a core skill which is programming, right? That that I see a lot of people adopting, even people that are not. Uh, you know, classically trained developers, if you want to call them like that, or people with CS degrees or whatever, right? Uh, you know, I do see the DevOps movement to some degree as, um, you know, ops people realizing that, you know, getting better at programming will help a lot, right? On top of it, they can also bring a lot of other things to the table, right? Uh, you know, I can see, you know, the the emergence of, uh, uh, you know, data scientists as essentially, uh, something of hey you know this is somebody who can work in a in a technology and business operation and deal uh, you know with data and do analysis but it's not really the classic analyst who looks at an Excel spreadsheet that's being prepared by somebody else. The data scientist also has you know pretty serious technical jobs all the way down to programming uh, uh, that allow them to sort of you know instruct the systems you know build pipelines with Hadoop and all of those kinds of things. So um, I don't think when I say that like. In tech, and in many ways, you know, in business, I think, uh, you know, everything in tech will like more and more revolve around programming. By that, I don't mean that necessarily everybody has to be the highest distributed system developer, and there will still be distinctions there for sure based on the, um, I guess, background and the specializations that people have. But I do think it'll be increasingly hard for people to work in tech if they can't if they can't program. So what I understand as the no ops movement, and you can tell me whether or not this is right, is that. NoOps is kind of the idea that you don't have a dedicated operations team because in the past, the idea of the dedicated operations team was you throw your code over the wall and the operations team is responsible for managing it. And the NoOps movement is like saying, well, we have all these programmers. If you write code, you need to be able to manage it and debug it, uh, whether it's in production or whatever. And, we, you know, you don't have a dedicated ops team that gets to hold your hand. You have to do the work. And I think the idea of the no, of the no ops, assuming I'm correct in describing this, is that it incentivizes developers to just write better code because they have to support it themselves. And that part is definitely important. Um, that's 100% important. The idea of throwing stuff over the wall is, is very um, counterproductive, right? Um, I think overall, I would basically just go and call it DevOps. Um, you know, I would mm, basically yeah, say, yeah. hey, there are folks who are coming from a programming of, like, let's say from a from a like developer background. There's people who are coming from a background of knowing, you know, you know, processes of how to run systems. You know, all of the things that are extremely useful there. You know, uh, monitoring, alerting. You know, how to run processes to basically fix or define and fix root causes and all of that. And I think I really think they're basically growing together, right? Because the systems that we're building today, um, you know, require the operational aspect, of course, right? Because it's all hosted, it's all running as a service. Uh, and I do think that, you know, the ops folks, you know, can pick up very, very many interesting things by observing developers. But I think equally so, developers, uh, you know, will be more productive if they actually pick up some good habits from the from the ops folks as well. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, uh, the idea that, you know, you write the code, but you don't run it. I mean, that's that's just, that's preposterous, right? I mean, if you write this shit, you also need to run it, right? And you need to get to a point where if your shit doesn't work, it wakes you up and not some poor other guy, right? 
Um, at the same time, there's a lot of, I think, infra and sort of platform stuff and monitoring stuff and so forth and operational stuff, frankly, that you need to be careful not you need to you need to realize that and you need, you need to find people who are good at worrying about that right as well and so then you bring things into balance right where uh, the flip is also that um, you know uh, uh, and in my mind this is really kind of the core of DevOps is that these people all need to come together in order to deliver a great experience for customers so put them into the fucking same room right and you know basically celebrate their differences and their their um you know their sort of different ways of looking at things but ultimately make it make it so that they kind of come together and basically get much better at problem solving what's the long-term vision for sumo logic and what kind of stuff are you guys working on right now so um the uh the so the sort of the, the long-term vision so it's kind of interesting actually i think um the space that we are in uh is of course um, getting very, very interesting again with this whole sort of overall shift in IT and the way that we build applications and, you know, services in the cloud and microservices and the fact that everything gets more and more complicated uh, uh, with the promise of, you know, giving better profits. But um, I think in general, uh, you know, businesses basically continue to rely on IT more and more so, right? And in fact, I mean, I think people have probably been saying this for 50 years, but uh, so it sounds like an old chestnut. But like, if you look at things like Uber or so, where basically entire new business models are being born just out of the, uh, uh, you know, abilities of having, you know, communication down to handsets, et cetera, that you can rely on and, and basically, you know, completely disrupt an existing business by, by, by simply using technology, <laughs> right? I, I, so I think this is going to continue. And so if you are in that you know, if that if you're kind of along the way of like if you're in a company that basically you know is using technology in order to do business, and I, I will I will submit that you have to be using technology in order to run a successful business, then you will face yourself. Then you're faced with this with with, with with the issue of basically making the technology actually work, right? Uh, and not just work in the sense of hey, is it actually correct and and whatnot, but like is it actually up and running? Does it actually work? You know, do people get good experience? Uh, and then you just need you just need a lot of support for doing that. Uh, and uh, there's a whole slew of folks coming from different angles, uh, you know, trying to help you with that, right? As a as a log management guy or machine data guy, of course, we're coming from the angle of logs, right? There's folks who think or come from the angle of monitoring and you know mostly metrics, etc., right? And then there's the people who are coming from the angle of of APM, which is based heavily on uh, you know, instrumentation agents and, you know, deep visibility into the code. Uh, and you can argue all day long which one is better. The reality is that I think everybody is trying to find sort of the middle ground uh, and combine these different, um, you know, capabilities, right? And you see the, the APM vendors starting to, like, dig in, dip a little bit their feet into logging and et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I think everybody there will be, I mean, I think there's sort of a general overall sort of, you know, consolidation going on. Uh, and I don't really know yet how that space is going to be called, but uh, I think we will see a disappearance of the um, sort of distinction between logging and metrics and APM. Um, so, so that's one thing. And you know, with that, I, I mean, I, I can't really speak to any concrete plans, of course, uh, that we haven't announced yet. But that probably gives you a little bit of an idea of how we're thinking about it, right? Um, you know, people need strong tools. You know, uh, people are telling us that they don't want to use three tools. They'd much rather use one, you know, things like things along those lines. And, of course, the other vendors are hearing the same thing. So it's going to be very interesting how this is going to play out 
Um, I think we have a very strong foundation here, uh, considering you know that I think we know how to run a very large scale system. We are cloud-based and all of that. Not everybody in the space necessarily is. So I think it's going to be super interesting. And then the other aspect of that, and I, I think there's basically 5, 10, 15 years worth more of you know, you know, know, broad and deep stuff that we could do to make it easier for folks to run their systems. Um, so that's one thing. So we're not going to run out of ideas there. Um, at the same time, the more that business relies on technology, you know, the more that we are basically running businesses over the web, basically. right? I think... Um, the application in particular, not so much down the stack, but the application in particular has all the information that you need in order to get insight into how the business is actually performing, right? And I think the other thing that you are seeing, and you will see that from us, and you are seeing it from other vendors as well, is, you know, trying to sort of go after sort of the business user, right? Basically trying to reinvent BI somehow, right? Because right now it's very painful, um, but if you already have systems like something like our machine data analytics system that is essentially a big data system that on its own already addresses things like variety and velocity and, of course, volume, um, maybe you at some point you don't need an enterprise data warehouse anymore. Maybe at some point you don't need yet another database that has this like overly structured sort of approach. Uh, and then you basically spend building the warehouse for a year so it can answer two queries during time of which those are probably obsolete. But you use the actual same system that's giving you a lot of insight into how your application is performing from the perspective of, you know, that, hey, I worry about how it's performing. Uh, but you use essentially the same systems to figure out how your business is performing, if that makes any sense. I think that's, I think in many ways, that's 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 where all of us are trying to go. Cool. Well, no, that's a bright future. It's a good explanation of uh, how you look at things and how things are going to play out in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, well, Christian, thanks so much for your time and coming on to Software Engineering Daily. I really appreciate this conversation. Likewise, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Those great questions, actually. So, thank you. Really cool. Appreciate it. Yep. Yeah.